Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, and welcome to 2024. This is our first event of the year, and we are delighted to have Matthew Blake with us talking about his brand new book, Anna O. And we have copies here at the bookstore. I'll go ahead and put a link in the comments field should you wish to order one. Um, and if you have questions for Matthew or Barbara, go ahead and put them in and Barbara will summon me uh, on screen towards the end of the hour, and I would be happy to ask any questions you might have. So, uh, Barbara, over to you. Thank you, Patrick. I love it. It's like magical powers. <laughs> and today, I may I may duck out early because I have to go and get a pneumonia check. The Christmas markets tour that we did in Europe, when the Rhine overflowed, and then everybody got sick. But that's the way it is when you travel in December. Matthew, how smart of you to stay in the UK instead of barging over here to the US, Lord. Anyway, we're doing one of our favorite things, which is to talk to a new author, a debut author. We live for those. Over 34, gosh, we're coming into 35 years. We've really made a specialty of um, reading and showcasing debuts, which I have to tell you, Matthew, is not always a line of profit for a bookstore. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's hugely appreciated. Thank you so much for having me on and for supporting new writers. <laughs> well, I didn't, didn't try to make you feel grateful. I just said that not every bookstore is quite as happy as we are to to do this. Um, so Anna O, uh, in order to understand Anna O, you really need to take a dive like I did, which I wrote up for you, into what this sleeping condition is which as I understand it, but Matthew can doubtless correct me um, if I'm wrong, is something that largely exists in Sweden. So how did you fasten on to this? I can't pronounce the Swedish, by the way. I, I put it in. No, nor, no, nor can I. It's, no, well, I, I, so the book was inspired really by two things, which was uh, first, what people do when they're sleepwalking and the sort of bizarre things they, they do and reading all these stories about people who get up in the middle of the night and go for sort of 40 mile drives and come back, go to sleep again and then or go to bed again and then wake up in the morning with no no memory of what they've done. So the idea of how your eyes can be open, but your brain can still be asleep. And so the second bit was, as you say, the resignation syndrome. That's the the this real life mystery illness where people fall into a deep sleep for years on end. And there's examples, Sweden is the most famous example where um, particularly in a refugee community, children who'd been denied asylum uh, fell into deep sleeps for, for years on end and couldn't be woken up. And so it's the nearest thing that medical science has to the sort of mythic idea of a deep sleep. Um, and it is, lots, there's lots of sort of theories about what causes it, but one of the key things is the absence of hope. And I thought as a novelist, that's a sort of fascinating idea that you could fall into a deep sleep through an absence of hope. So when I got those, the sleepwalking and the deep sleep, that was when uh, the idea for Anna Rowe was was born. So we have a sort of ultimate unreliable narrator or absent yeah. narrator, whatever you want to call it. What's the difference, Matthew, in your mind between resignation syndrome, i.e. deep sleep and a coma? Well, in the interesting thing about resonation syndrome and the reason why it's a mystery illness is there's there's no actual organic disease on the brain. So um, that's what sort of confounds neurologists and why it's such a fascinating thing, whereas obviously a coma is usually caused by um, an accident or trauma to the head or, or something. So I think that's why as a novelist and as a thriller writer, resignation syndrome for me was so much more interesting than 
having someone in a coma because the causes of what led up to it um, are fascinating and the sort of the history and the personal circumstances and the character, I guess, because and that's what uh, Ben, my friend, my psychologist investigates. And that's, you know, all novelists are primarily interested in character, I think. And so resignation syndrome seemed like such a good entry point to explore the character of Anna Rowe. Absolutely true. I was thinking, um, because I remember years ago, there was an episode of House, which I always thought, if you remember House, yeah. ridiculous, where some guy had been in a coma for like nine years. And yeah. in a coma, you know, there, there's very little voluntary word is on the part of the person in the coma. It's mostly machines and all keeping him alive. And then yeah. magically, there's some, I can't remember some pretext about he had a son that did something weird. So they woke him up. And amazingly, he arose from the bed where he has been for nine years right? and went through this, you know, whatever thing that went on. And in the end, the drug is going to wear off and he's going to relapse back into the coma. So how sends him off to hang himself so that he can donate his heart to his son or something? And the last words he says wow. is, be sure you take two aspirin. I mean, it was so weird. But the yeah. thing was completely improbable because I once had a, long, a, a terrible accident that kept me bedridden for a while, is that unless, unless your muscles are regularly exercised, unless there is some sort of thing, gradually, if you're just lying in bed, you know, you lose muscle mass, you lose yeah. all that yeah. stuff. So when Anna, it seemed to me, not only are they feeding her, but they have a pretty heavy exercise program. Yes. And that right. was all thoroughly researched. So I sort of read everything I could about the real life cases of um, how people have been treated who have resignation syndrome. And there's particularly amazing work done by um, a neurologist who also writes popular science books called Suzanne O'Sullivan. And she's written extensively traveling all around the world, um, looking at cases of resignation syndrome and how you how you treat it. And so, yeah, all that was taken. I mean, really, for the whole book, everything is um, is real. The, all my favorite thrillers, they're, they're sort of thrilling and scary because everything in it could happen and in many cases has happened. And so with resignation syndrome, I was really, really attentive to the real life cases and how you actually are treated. So that's all taken directly from life. I do think that medical thrillers, so to speak, or thrillers that have some sort of medical mysterious element, um, I couldn't help but think of the silent patient to some degree, mm. you know, which well, is a completely different, um, you know, medical thing. But also one of the things I liked about your book so much, uh, it's our British Crime Club pick for January, which oh, is right. a way of selling lots of books that aren't autographed by the author because a right. bookstore like ours depends on signatures at a particular club doesn't require them. And in fact, I think our whole first order with one exception of the book Patrick was holding is already sold out. So I have to. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. done really well. Um, but anyway, um, because it's a British crime club pick with a specific focus, therefore, for those people that belong to that club, I like the way that it does enlighten us some about the National Health Service and about the British justice system and so forth. So why don't you tell us how the the thing kicks off with the minister from the Justice Department showing up. Yeah, well, it's, so it starts sort of in the middle of the night. Our uh, lead character, Dr. Benedict Prince, gets a, a call out of the blue, summoning him to his 
workplace, which is the Abbey um, Sleep Clinic in Harley Street. So it's uh, um, where sort of celebrities and big A-list names go and get their sleep problems cured. So it's uh, a very uh, interesting sort of precinct. And he, he's, uh, he's a, a forensic psychologist who specializes in sleep. And the biggest case in uh, Britain, but really in the world in the book is, is the case of Anna Rowe, who um, uh, stabbed her two best friends to death four years ago and then fell into a, a deep sleep and no one's been able to wake her up since. Um, and so Benedict Prince Ben goes um, to the Abbey Sleep Clinic and there he meets with someone from the Ministry of Justice, which is the, the sort of legal um, government department in the UK, who says uh, as a last ditch attempt to try and get Anna Rowe to stand trial for the double murder, they're going to move her to the Abbey Sleep Clinic and they're going to put Ben in charge of her care to see if a new treatment he's devised will help wake her up. So uh, suddenly Ben has the biggest case of his life um, and a chance to sort of make his name, put his name in the history books to see if he can be the person who can uh, wake Anna up and really find out um, what happened, why she did what she did and his cure, which is based on the idea of restoring hope means that he has to understand what led her to have no hope and what led her to commit the the terrible crimes and why she might have done this, which is the sort of baffling mystery. So uh, that's how it starts. And then, um, yeah, then it, it, it goes, twists and turns and uh, shocks you all the way through, hopefully. So Benedict Prince noticed yeah. that there's a, a whole sleeping beauty in the Prince waking oh, there is. Yeah, there's a lot of... I mean, it just hits you over the head, so we can't really ignore it. Um, but there's another wrinkle in this, which is that Benedict Prince's wife yes. is a part of this. So tell us about his name, Claire, remembers her name, Clara, something like that, Claire? Yes, Clara. So, um, yes, his wife is a, a senior murder detective in the Metropolitan Police, but she used to be um, in the, the Oxfordshire Police, and she was the first person on the scene um, on the night on the, when this terrible event happened, when Anaro killed these two people. So, one of the reasons why it's such a huge case for Ben is not only because it's such a national, international sensation and could make his career, but also it's got a huge personal pull as well because uh, his family have been involved through his wife um, in this case ever since it started, and he's now divorced from his wife. So, um, uh, in some ways, he also sees the case as a way to to try and get back in uh, Clara's good books. And in some way, a sort of distant dream of repairing the family unit. They have a daughter who's called Kit Kat, and uh, Ben still harbors uh, a sort of dream that they might somehow get back together. So it, it's very it's high stakes professionally and hugely high stakes personally too. Well, right. I mean, if you're going to write a story like that, you do have to give very high stakes to well, the exactly, main characters. Yeah. Or why are we even doing this? Right. It's a high stakes for Clara, too, in the sense that she was the original investigating officer. Yep. And if she can, um, you know, figure out what happened. Um, and in, a, in the in the case, is the forensic evidence, I don't want to give much away here, is the forensic evidence reasonably clear why is it that they need Anna to wake up? Where is where's the doubt as to what happened? Well, that's the thing. There isn't much doubt in the sense that it, it all the evidence looks very, very damning. But um, 
they can't uh, imprison or they can't sort of sentence someone who isn't conscious and really or isn't awake. And the really the key sort of ethical question, the key sort of mystery element that uh, Ben has to look at and the, the reader really has to judge uh, for most of the book is, even though we know Anna may have wielded the knife, did she know what she was doing? Because if she was sleepwalking while she was doing it, um, could it have been uh, beyond her control? And so the novel looks a lot of real life cases where people have killed other people while sleepwalking. And what's terrifying and interesting is that in some cases, people have been found not guilty. They've been uh, it, the sleepwalking defense has been believed and in other cases they it hasn't been believed and they have been found guilty so there's no uh, settled uh, view in the legal system in the UK or the US or anywhere in the world actually because I looked at it all around uh, all the cases around the world about how you can ever tell if you were sleepwalking when you commit a murder um, and people have been invoking this defense for hundreds of years but it's I was speaking to one neurologist who said that unless you had sort of probes on someone's head while they were committing the murder it would it would be impossible ever to conclusively prove either way whether they were sleepwalking or not so that's the that's the mystery the inherent mystery that uh ben must sort of grapple with wow that's an interesting variant on the mcnaughton rules which are a way of determining whether a person is insane or not, and therefore not guilty by reason of insanity. And I think the McNaughton rules were developed in the UK, not the US. And they're a kind of, you know, again, standard, you know, because you have to believe a person was genuinely insane. As a, and how do we make, make that determination? So really the sleep thing is just a variation of that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it, it's, um, it's particularly looking at this idea of, um, how you can i mean the, the fascinating thing about sleepwalking is how you can function so well without being fully conscious and the idea of your brain being asleep but your eyes being open um and i again i did a lot of research from speaking to neurologists about this and um they were telling me all about how the brain can be half asleep and half awake um and that's how if you encounter someone who's sleepwalking it's not immediately obvious they are sleepwalking because uh, they look like the person you know, their eyes are open, they seem to be knowing what they're doing, but they're not behaving as you would know them to behave. So that's this, we were into the whole world of nightmares and the unconscious and uh, night terrors. I mean, uh, one of the fascinating things, I was in the in the US in October meeting booksellers and, and uh, journalists and everything everybody has a sleep story as soon as you uh as soon as you open up that world it's something people haven't talked about but everyone sharing about their partner sleep talking about their sister doing sort of night terrors and walks and so once you open that the lid of that once you take the lid off all these stories come out and it's like a sort of whole second world that we all we all share but we just so rarely talk about has it ever happened to you um, it hasn't happened to me, but it has happened to family members. Um, so I, though I wouldn't necessarily know, I because I, I live alone. So I mean, uh, I could be sleepwalking uh, for all I know, and I, I wouldn't necessarily be able to tell. But uh, no, I've seen it happen in others, and it's uh, that is a really 
interesting um thing which makes you you question <clears throat> a lot about consciousness and uh how how the brain works well as i understand it the general um advice is not to try to wake them up mm, yeah. because you know it could be traumatic dangerous whatever it all is so yeah. um i have read about you know people guiding sleepwalkers home you know trying to get them like back to bed whatever yeah. it is i've never had anything like that i've not experienced it so you know i'm i'm looking at it from the outside wondering you know how it would how it be i can't remember anyone in my life ever actually doing that people talk in their sleep that you know that part i know yes. about but yeah. anyway um it's a it's a fascinating premise how much how much do you think that the book is grabbing so much wonderful praise and all because of this interesting condition? I'm not commenting on how well written it is or any of those other things which we could talk about, but you know, it's a high concept book. So do you think that part of, of all the attention it's getting is in fact related to this, you know, sort of unexplored problem? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the 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 key sort of Hitch and the thing I started with is the idea that we, uh, the average person spends about 33 years of their life asleep. So, uh, and this whole sort of other world um, that unites every, I mean, there's so few truly universal things, but sleep is, is one of them. It unites all 8 billion people on the planet. Um, and so I always knew if I could tap into that, if you could, you know, write a, uh, do something interesting with that premise, then you'd be onto something. And uh, yeah, no, so the, the resignation syndrome, sleepwalking, what do we do when we sleep? That's 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 what grabbed me about the the book and the idea, and it's what uh, has grabbed agents and publishers, and uh, now hopefully readers around the world, because uh, everyone can relate to it. It's it's the universal premise, and I think uh, all the thrillers I love take something universal, then do something interesting with it. So uh, I try to follow that example. Well, you really set a high bar for yourself. I mean, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure on you to come up with something equally spectacular. Um, sometimes I've noticed, I mean, I'm not prognosticating here, but there are authors who have had this kind of sensational idea and hit and whatever, who've been taking years to write another book, if they ever write another book, you know, whether yeah. Gone with the Wind or To Kill a Mockingbird or whatever. But I think it was Thomas Harris took 10 years to write a book after Silence of the Lambs, whatever. Yeah, happens. no, he's, yeah, I'm a huge Thomas Harris fan. Yeah. Yeah. Silence of the Lambs, I was, I was reading that while I was writing. It was a sort of real touchstone for me. But yeah, no, he, he hasn't uh, produced many. We'll see. I mean, I, I've, I'm currently working on the next one. So uh, uh, it, uh, but we'll, we'll, yeah, hopefully not 10 years. I have not either. I mean, you know, but here's the thing is that with the first novel, the author has forever to write the book. You know, if you're smart, you don't even tell any people you're writing the book, so there's no pressure. And, you know, you can work on, and after it publishes, everybody expects a second book within a fairly finite space. And oftentimes they want you to write something different, but just the same. Yes, that's, that, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the thing about publishing that can really just drive you crazy. <laughs> and it's almost as though authors get like a, you know, one of those um, cast stamps or something. Bang, right on the forehead. And okay, here's Matthew and he's going to write astonishing medical-based thrillers forever. <laughs> or, you know, you can break the mold and do something yeah. completely different. Uh, but 
I think I think Matthew sometimes it's a lot harder to continue after a huge initial success right. than if you start with a smaller book and you know <laughs> kind of work your way towards it. Some authors, you know, I always talk about Rex Stout who didn't think of Neuro Wolf until he'd written I think it was over forty books or something. Yeah. Uh, so by the time he got there, <laughs> it was. <laughs> You know, who knows? I mean, uh, you know, you can't really control this whole path to whatever it is. But it's yeah. interesting how, um, you know, the pluses and minuses of a of a big hit, uh, how authors deal with them and so forth. Speaking of which, Matthew's ace publicist, Leslie, whom I'm very fond of, sent me a handy list of praise that I can quote. So I'll drop in a few here. The Today Show, for example, really liked this book. Um, Nita Prose, who wrote The Maid, which I have to say was one of my favorite books of, I think it was last year. Um, it just, it was, it was sneaky. It was such a good book. And then it, it just sort of snuck up on you as you were reading it. But how wonderful it was. Anyway, she calls this an, un, a riveting, unsettling crime novel that will keep you turning pages well past your bedtime. Anna O, is Anna O a sleeping beauty or a sleeping killer? Matthew Blake's tension-filled thriller is as elusive and mysterious as sleep itself. Then my good friend Lee Child, whose entire career so far we've encompassed, an irresistible concept beautifully executed, certain to be one of the year's best thrillers. Lee is great. He's so generous to other Oh, authors. yeah. No, I mean, both Lee and Lee, they've been amazing, really. It's uh, wonderful. I hope, have you actually met him or will you get a chance to, do you think? Oh, I haven't met him. I'd love to meet him. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan, actually. And uh, I, I have particularly one of my key sort of inspirations was the little little book he did called The Hero. For he did it for, uh, yeah. And that, that, that I think that probably changed my entire view of writing, really, when I when I read that book. So, yeah. Gosh, I hope someday I will meet him. Well, we may have to try to get you here in order to accomplish that. <laughs> oh, yeah. People Magazine says, steeped in mythology, psychology, and true crime lore, Blake's cliffhanger features a young woman who's been asleep since she murdered her two besties four years earlier. Now's the time to wake up Sleeping Beauty and unleash a cascade of twists likely to outfox all but the sharpest thriller mavens. And A.J. Finn, otherwise known as Dan, an audacious inventive mystery, a thriller of ideas, and here's irony for you. A novel about sleep to keep you up late. I really like that, you know. And, well, yeah, great anyway, cool. uh, it, yeah, he has a he has a great way with words. He'll be with us on March 14th, and I'm really looking uh, forward to seeing what he's done after The Woman in the Window. There's another case where a book that was so popular does not immediately produce a, yeah, a sequel. Yeah, it's, well, it's end of story, actually. I was lucky enough to get a... We're published by the same publisher uh, in the UK, so I got an uh, I got an early edition. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal read. So uh, oh, you know. good. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I've harassed yeah. your. Is it Collins in the UK? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've harassed the. You, you know, I call them Harper here and Collins in the UK yeah. just to try to yeah. keep it straight. We do a lot of work with a London bookstore. We have a partnership there where we, you know, trade sign books back yeah. and forth or so forth, and I'm. I'm always careful to refer to it as Collins as kind of a key that it's going to be a UK book. And then my friend David Baldacci, who was recently here, calls this a wickedly stunning book. Blake's experience as a screenwriter is on full display here as he ramps up the suspense and carves out his cast of wonderful characters with the skill of a pro. So that's something I haven't asked you about. Tell me about your career as a screenwriter and how maybe that helped you see this book as you wrote it. 
Yeah, well, I, I have a sort of fledgling career as a screenwriter, and I also used to write, uh, used to be a speech writer for hire for people, so for politicians, particularly here in London. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, both disciplines, the sort of speech writing and the screenwriting really helped. I mean, uh, the main sort of maxim, I guess, for both of them is don't be boring. You know, you can't, uh, you've got to get people's attention, you can't lose them. Uh, so that's, you know, especially when you come from, I studied English and did all that sort of stuff. When you come from that, it's, uh, it's quite a brutal but necessary sort of training ground to, to get you thinking of the audience and how people are going to react and how you can um, one of my favourite quotes is a Hitchcock quote about uh, playing the audience like a church organ. That's my, so uh, I always think that's what I keep, it's a sort of game between the author and the, the reader. And uh, um, so I think the screenwriting taught me structure, it taught me um, pace, it taught me uh, short snappy scenes that end on a, on a cliffhanger that keep you turning, um, keep you going to the next chapter, how to sort of, how to pitch a concept, how to pitch a treatment, uh, you know, an idea. So, uh, yeah, both the, the speech writing, the screenwriting, very, very useful. Did you always want to be a novelist or is that a sort of surprise, you know, thing that grew after you been successful as a screenwriter and a speech writer? No, I always wanted to be a novelist, always wanted to write books. I think it's um, both screenwriting and speech writing are very collaborative uh, exercises where obviously you're, although there is a certain level of um, sort of creative voice in it, obviously you're you're constantly uh, negotiating with lots of different people about what's in it. Whereas I think with the novel, uh, obviously you've got editors and uh, that sort of thing, but it is all you. It's all uh, your sort of voice and imprint, and uh, and I think that you know there's it gives you room to tell a story. Uh, that you, you 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 know a speech is ten minutes and a, a screenplay is a hundred minutes or you know uh, a couple of hours in a series or something. Whereas a novel, you've got the all the space to really go into it. So definitely, the 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 summit for me was always always writing a novel. Did you find that you had to beef it up, so to speak, or you had to pare it down? Because you know I always think it's magical how books come out to be approximately the same length as most yeah. of your books, you know? I mean, I've, I've got my arc here, so we are somewhere in the, where are we here? Well, it's a little longer than most. You're in the 400 range, but, you know, a question that I get all the time from, from readers is, you know, how does the author know when the book is done? I mean, how do you know when the story's finished? Um, how do you find that? Well, I mean, I, I uh, sort of very much thought of it in sort of acts of the story. So, um, and was aiming for that sort of, I guess, peak thriller length of uh, between sort of 1900,000 words. That seems, that's always quite a good, uh, a lot of the books I've loved. Um, I think Silence of the Lambs is exactly 100,000. So I always sort of had that in my mind for some reason, but uh, uh yeah, I mean, for me, it was um, the challenge. I mean, one of my absolute favorite authors of all time is Agatha Christie. She's what my gateway to the whole world of crime fiction. And she, you know, made her name by breaking all the rules and introducing these huge sort of game-changing twists in a series of her uh, books. And I guess I, when I read those, I always hoped that one day I could have, a, you know, try and do the same. And so... Uh, 
we're in a world with so much content, Netflix and Amazon, and everyone's watched everything, read everything. So my, I thought, how can I come up with a plot or a twist that could genuinely surprise even the most sort of seasoned mystery fans and thriller fans? And so when I got to that point, that was when I sort of had my ending and then everything else was constructed around that. Aha. Uh -huh. So are you, you know, for, for many authors, the first draft is just that. It's a first draft. And then the book really becomes the book during the editing or revision or whatever it is. Was that true for you? No, I mean, for me, it was uh, a lot of thinking and a lot of researching first, really, because I, um, having done the screenwriting and stuff, I was quite, com you know, reasonably comfortable with structure and that sort of protagonist, you know, and... and how to craft the story, but putting all the really interesting bits in there, making sure it was all authentic. Um, and that obviously, you know, the key thing with the high concept is you've got to land it. You've got to make people believe it. And this is a hugely high concept. So it just needed a lot of research to get every bit of it believable, every bit of it, where if someone went off and Googled it, they can see, oh yeah, all that is real. That really could happen. Um, so it was all that first and then um, getting that opening, really, and then then just went from there. So but I planned it all out beforehand. Well, it's certainly true that in a high concept book, the end has to be as good as the beginning or the reader is yeah. truly crushed. But I also sort of chuckle about the Agatha Christie thing, because, you know, Christie thought that the perfect length for a book was, I'm trying to remember, 130 pages or something, because she felt her pots were so complex that she wanted people to be able to read the book between dinner and bedtime so she yeah. wasn't too long and her publisher the book was so woefully slow her publisher you know not only made it beep up but they because books are done in signatures they would sneak yeah. in like an extra signature or something so that but if you look at her books they are remarkably yeah. short compared yeah. to you know today's thrillers Mom and it was deliberate yeah. on on her part and yeah. Um, you know, she's had, she's never gone out of style, but she's had such a renaissance recently, especially the whole concept of, you know, the, um, and then there were none, which of course had a much more unfortunate title at the beginning. Yes, which came yes. Um, and I've always been sort of surprised that nobody's tried to really redo the murder of Roger Ackroyd, which, you know, in many ways I thought was, it certainly in my view, maybe the, the first and best unreliable narrator book ever written. Um, and there are variations on unreliable narrators, but you yeah. know, maybe no, maybe nobody can really quite get to her. You probably haven't read um, met an Icelandic author yet named Ragnar Janusson. I have, yeah. No, I have, have. I've, oh, I've read him you? and uh, he very generously, I mean he He'd had the best photo of uh, Anna O ever because it was poolside with a sort of uh, whiskey glass on top of it. And uh, he very generously chose it as the uh, best crime novel he's, he's read in the last 12 months. So that was a huge endorsement from him. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Well, but he's a, he's an Agatha Christie. I mean, he is. The yeah. Agatha, and yeah. he, he's translated her books into Icelandic. Um, and there were several of us who participated. Bloomsbury did a, a book about Agatha Christie critiques and so forth. I think it was Val McDermott and Sophie Hanna. But anyway, I wrote an essay for it um, because I went to her 100th birthday party in Torquay. So I have all these kind of, right. it wasn't yeah. there, um, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, memories of it. And um, 
Ed Ragnar contributed to it. And it was so interesting. You know, if you travel around the world, if you go to Istanbul, you can go to the Parapels. You know, I've stayed in the Cataract Hotel in, you know, Aswan, Egypt. You yeah. know, she was, you know, you think of her as so British and you sort of think, you know, like the village. But yeah. the truth is, she was really quite a traveler. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's one of the huge misconceptions, I think, particularly because uh, the sort of British series with uh, David Suchet as Proro, where they they tend to tonally do it is quite um, on the cosier end of things sometimes in the last few episodes were uh, not that. But then actually, when you go back to reading the books, the books are quite different from that. They're sort of straight novels at the time. And I mean, I think... uh, yeah, most of them, and as far as you could get from the sort of cosy village English yeah. history. I mean, uh, certainly my favourites, I mean, um, something like Crooked House has got just the most amazing twist, and then there were on, obviously, the best-selling mystery of all time. Uh, yeah, Death on the Nile, I mean, truly but global. And, murders, uh, which is really a brutal book, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it is. Really yeah. is. Um, well, anyway, we digress, but I do think that Agatha is not only has never died, but at the moment, there are many people writing sort of, there's a, a very entertaining book called The Busybody, which we're going to be hosting at the end of the month, in which you'll love this, in which the author points out um, something about the effect that sidekicks almost invariably wind uh-huh. up looking stupid or underperformed. And then he said, but Miss Marple works alone, which I think is just, I, I mean, I think somebody should actually write a book called Miss Marple Works Alone, which, you know, it's true, uh, because yeah, that way yeah. she never had to look, you know, like she was shuffling along with somebody. Anyway, um, so you've had lots of great response to this, um, lots of foreign sales, I'm assuming that um, yeah, it's... Oh, it's in many languages to come. Yeah, it's published in over 30 territories worldwide with uh, more on the way. The latest foreign rights that we've done is for Mongolia. So, uh, yeah, no, we're really, really... Go to Olin Bator and hit the bookshelf. Exactly, I can't wait. Um, So, yeah. Of course, there's probably film interest. You could hardly fail to have film interest. Yeah, yes, no, there's loads. We've had some... Yeah, so it's uh, all very exciting. Well, wonderful for you. Let me call up Patrick and see if anybody watching this has wants any has any questions or comments they would like to make. Oh yeah, there there are a lot of people watching, and uh, it's such a fascinating subject uh, that people are are kind of weighing in with their own personal experiences about sleepwalking, and oh, you know, yeah. uh, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, as far as questions go, let's see here. Um, yeah, Renee asks, uh, Matthew, how are you celebrating your novel's publication? Ah, <laughs> uh, nothing too flashy, just sort of, uh, uh, I mean, I'm mainly stuck on Instagram these days, sort of trying to catch up with all the, all the new alerts, but I did go out for a sort of nice, nice dinner with my family. So that was, uh, that was as splashy as it got, I'm afraid. <laughs> what was your actual UK pub date, Matthew? It's uh, first of February, so uh, not long. Oh, so we're we're actually ahead of the game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, yeah the first one. So the official well, update here was Tuesday, actually, I imagine, which right. was January second, um, when many of us were not 
yet working. <laughs> I love publishing. You know, publishing has things like Easter Monday. Or <laughs> so, you know, January 2nd is kind of like, you know, New Year's Day to Tuesday or whatever it might be. So um, how many how many U.S. events have you actually got scheduled? Oh, lots. So I, I mean, I was did a, a pre-publication tour uh, in October, so it was and went to Toronto and then uh, did five cities. So uh, and then I got yeah lots of uh, interviews and uh, lots of things coming up. So uh, yeah, it's a busy schedule. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, you may have addressed this a little bit, but uh, there's a question about uh, would a sleepwalking crime come under an insanity plea? Well, that's it was the one I, we brought up about the McNaughton rules when yeah. I, I pointed out that they kind of apply to this. Right. Well, there's, there's the term of insane automatism, which is the sleepwalking defense. And uh, yeah, that's the big, big debate because it's so difficult as against other sort of insanity pleas where obviously someone suffering from ongoing psychiatric um, difficulties with sleepwalking. Obviously, it's an isolated incident it's not uh, ever present and uh, one neurologist told me that even when you take someone who might be a defendant in a court case and put them in a sleep clinic to try and determine whether they're a sleepwalker oftentimes they don't present as a sleepwalker on the nights they're in the sleep clinic because it doesn't sort of happen on command so that's where it's so 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 difficult in a trial to determine is the person trying to use sleepwalking as a way to get away with murder or is it genuinely did they carry it out because they were sleepwalking you know, one question that I didn't ask you, and I should have, is who are the victims? They're her two best friends. So they're they're um, the two people who she she Anna O is a, a journalist, and she runs a sort of small uh, millennial slash Gen Z focused magazine. So her two the two victims are her two best friends who are sort of uh, flatmates and and working with her on this. So that's important. They weren't just random people. Oh, no, 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 no. It's that's part of the sort of history of the case that Ben has to go into and her relationship with her friends. And we have Anna's diary entries about uh, her relationship with these two best friends. And uh, yeah, so it's all it's a sort of tangled emotional web. Um. One of the one of the viewers says, uh, "My my parents had to put a chain lock a chain lock high on our front door because I would sleepwalk and open the front door as a child." Wow. Yeah. Wow. I well, I've read a lot of cases like that where, yeah, the the sort of uh, safety rails, the things that people have to do to try and wake themselves up or stop it, is is just amazing. I mean, the whole world of sleepwalking. If you Google it, it is uh, wow. It's you you'll, it, you. It's a whole other universe. <laughs> uh, let's see, my daughter sleepwalks and we have to wake her up. Yeah. Hmm. This is a, this is probably a larger question than we can deal with today, but uh, what is the brain doing during sleep? As far as I know, I've read a lot of things about it but it's we might know what the brain is doing but what the mind is doing which is a slightly sort of bigger that is still a huge mystery I think that's where the idea of the unconscious and dreams and the logic of dreams and nightmares and all that stuff that comes in and that is still a mystery I think we just don't can't even fathom it is there much in the literature on this about you know obviously people who sleepwalk don't sleepwalk every night hmm. um 
is there like a rough percentage of the the amount of times like say during a month period that they will sleepwalk or is it hard to really study that i think it's very hard to really study that because uh people don't spend long enough in sort of sleep clinics to uh sort of chart that over months you know they go in for a week or a few days to get help so um and i think it very much varies with with individuals i mean um in the book we i sort of go into a bit of what can bring it on what can um sort of cause it and then you're back into the very interesting ethical bit where say if you drink very heavily and drinking can lead to sleepwalking if say you drank heavily you sleep sleepwalked you committed some sort of act with the fact you drunk knowing that it might lead to sleepwalking would that mean that you didn't you know you're culpable for it um there's all those sorts of things going on which are fascinating but the book explores them wow Listen, Patrick, I am going to have to excuse myself. Thank you, everybody. I'm no problem. Patrick. I have to go to a medical appointment, not to do with sleepwalking, I'm happy to say. But okay. Matthew, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you. It's I hope you can see us at some point. But in the meantime, uh, okay. do remember that we do have cop well, actually, we're reordering, <laughs> reordering NO. Um, and it's a wonderful book to read in January to sort of, you know, like do something challenging, different get yourself going for a really good reading year because mm -hmm. it's going to be a tough year otherwise <laughs> we may have to depend on books in january and all year long to keep us sane this time around anyway it's a great pleasure thank you matthew and patrick carry on right we'll do all right um yeah so it, it's such a fascinating topic one, one of the things i wanted to ask you was um you know your character in the book uh the forensic psychologist yeah. um Benedict Prince. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit, maybe just a little bit more about that character? And, you know, uh, obviously you had to research uh, his job and yeah. yeah. tell us a little bit more about him. Well, I mean, he's a, so he's a forensic psychologist who specializes in sleep crime. So that's his sort of, uh, his niche specialism. And that's why he partly why he's employed at the Abbey because they have a a sideline in in doing sleep crime cases. So uh, forensic psychology is something I've been interested in for uh, years, really. I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes fan, and that idea of um, approaching crime from that uh, sort of the art of deduction and then the psychology of the criminal and uh, the idea of mind traces where you're trying to sort of understand the, the psychological makeup of someone who might have committed these crimes. That's such a sort of interesting theme to all the greatest crime books. So, and the so, forensic psychologist is, is the sort of modern day Sherlock, the modern day equivalent to that. So I read up a huge amount about forensic psychology and, and really to try and get into Ben's mind and how he would approach things but of course the great interesting thing from a novelist perspective in terms of character is that although a forensic psychologist might be an expert in understanding other people's minds it's not as if they've got their own lives all in order as, as well so Ben's uh divorced he's got a, a small daughter um he's sort of got battles at work so he's he's sort of curing other people's problems but not necessarily able to diagnose his own so that contradiction is sort of central to the character that's like the you know the mechanics car falling <laughs> apart and that kind of thing yes exactly yeah well yeah. well one, i mean one of the things that comes up in crime fiction so much is um you know that edge uh you know 
if under the right set of pressures and circumstances and stresses, what are all of us capable of doing, yeah. you know, yeah. and, um, you know, wh where that turns into a, a you know, aberrant psychology versus yeah. just the, uh, you know, different factors is, is a really interesting thing to investigate. Yeah. And I think what, what comes out from all the, the sort of real life cases is how thin the divide is between, yeah. um, between us and the healthy mind versus uh, um, leading someone to commit a, a terrible crime. And uh, all the most interesting thrillers, I think, sort of have ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. They've got, um, it's sort of so relatable about how someone, you know, who looks normal and sounds normal and uh, looks like a sort of functioning member of society can go and do something absolutely terrible. And, mm. Uh, that is very much the case in Anna Rowe. That's why it's such a fascinating case. Anna is a when she committed the crime, was a twenty-five-year-old, successful, bright. Um, why on earth would she suddenly commit this this truly terrible crime? What on earth can possibly have led up to it? It's sort of the great mystery that um, uh, fascinates all the people about the case. So, uh, yeah, no, it's a it's a really really fascinating area. You know, and and you know on that. And that what we we're just talking about. Um, have you read? There's a book that came out recently by Johan Hari called Lost Connections. Yes, I have. Yeah, that's a great book. Yeah, yeah. really interesting. You know, and he talks yeah. about, you know, is this environment that we're all, you know, living in you know, the culture now, the how everybody's focus is distracted by social media yeah. and the constant bombardment of information yeah. pulling us in all these different directions. You know how that is uh it's almost like our whole culture has adhd now you know yeah and, uh, well I, that's something i also wanted to sort of look at in the book and and uh it's got a, a for sort of true crime fans it's got got quite a bit of of that in about before she committed the crime anna was investigating this sort of real life true crime case and uh in some ways how how fascinated we all are by by these cases and how sort of available all information is now. You know, you've got whether it's podcasts or Netflix true crime series or whatever. We we were sort of saturated with all this stuff. And uh uh yeah, so the book sort of really tries to look at that and uh in a very sort of modern way and and uh how that has affected our our sort of investigative approach, you know. Uh and um yeah, no, it, it really has changed things. Right. Um, let's see here. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, Robin says, uh, there's a study about how the brain is actually sleeping in drivers who repetitively commute. Their eyes are open, okay. and they drive appropriately, but they are asleep. Have you seen Ooh. other studies like this? Well, I'd love to see that study. No, I haven't seen I'm. But yeah, that is a fascinating um thing about repetitive behavior but um yeah well i mean i've read lots of other studies and and um the the notion of the brain not always being fully awake when we think it is but not fully asleep when we we think it is and how we're not in control of that and that is really 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 it's quite scary to be honest when you start to kind of terrifying think about it because it, it, it's sort of on the separate from us and uh yeah once you start thinking about it your uh your your sleep itself may not be quite as restful as it was well, you know, and we douse ourselves with, I don't know, caffeine, you know, and yeah. coffee all yeah. day. 
And then we take our trazodone at night or whatever we're yeah. taking to help us sleep. We get into this really unnatural yeah. Yeah. Uh, dance, really. Yeah. Our, yeah. Maybe I'm revealing too much about myself here. I've got my <laughs> iced coffee. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned, okay, another question that's come in is about, um, well, two questions. How long did it take you to write Anna O? And um, can you tell us anything about your work in progress now? Yeah, so uh, it took about four years to write Anna O from the, the first idea to the completed manuscript. A lot of that was the the research and the plotting and the planning and um, particularly the research because there's just so much sort of interesting stuff there. Um, and once I had all that, then I, you know, the, the words flowed really. Um, in terms of the work in progress, it, it's it's about false memory, the next book. Uh, and uh, I didn't think there'd be a subject in which there's more things out there than sleep, but it turns out with false memory, there is. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing about how what we think we remember isn't actually what happened, how we can retrieve memories, um, the reliability or the unreliability of those recovered memories. Um, and uh, obviously in the, the context of the greatest fear sort of stalking the planet is a memory illness in dementia. That's what we're all sort of worried about. Mm. Um, it looks at uh yeah the memory false memory what if the sort of your most treasured memories turned out not to be true i came across a great quote which was something like um memory is always more poet than reporter yes that's a great quote isn't it and it's yeah. so true medically as well it's a, it definitely is we think it's reliable and we think it's uh repeating what actually occurred instead it's it's every time we access a memory apparently we we're recrafting it so uh yeah scary yeah and and you know in some cases turning it turning the memory to our advantage yeah. or yeah. skewing it in a negative way it's very yeah. interesting yeah. And i think it's such sort of pattern builders and we like the idea of narrative and things connecting so obviously often we we take our memories and we put it into our pre-agreed narrative that suits ourselves. And actually the reality itself was a lot messier and a lot less sort of um, packaged up. Right, right, exactly. So what uh, what angle are you taking with, with the topic of false memory? Well, it's, um, it's set in Paris and it's about someone who... Uh, uh, is suffering from dementia and then um, goes to a hotel called the Lutetia in Paris um, and confesses to committing a murder. Uh, and it turns out that that hotel uh, was used uh, after the war to process all uh, French survivors of the concentration camp. So they all lived there. Um, and the room in which this person claims the murder happened was actually used by the person she claims to have murdered. So uh, we're in the whole world of, of uh, memory, false memory, uh, is she, has she been a murderer, all that, all that stuff. It's very, very exciting and thrilling and uh, uh, yeah, another sort of amazing universe to explore. How, how far along are you in it? Uh, I'm, well, I'm working on edits at the moment. So, uh, yeah, so uh, fingers crossed it, uh, uh, it will be out, I'm hoping, in 2025. Fantastic. Wow. 
uh, Robin, she comes, yeah, she says, uh, the more we share the story, the more it distorts one way or another. Yeah, really true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is a topic that we, uh, and then we'll wrap it up here. But I've talked to a lot of mystery and crime writers about the subject of, you know, places where traumatic events or, excuse me, violence have occurred. You know, yes. you, think of, you know, you go to Gettysburg or you go to, in this case, uh, this particular building, hotel where the Holocaust yeah. survivors, um, you know, is there a resident, you know, some sort of, not to get too far out into the yeah. woo zone, but there is some sort of psychic residue it seems, oh, definitely. That, definitely. that remains, uh, uh, you know, and maybe it's our minds creating that. We have a need to create that because we know but uh, it's it's a fascinating topic. Oh, it is, and I, I think you can absolutely tell that when you walk into a space like that. It, it um, history sort of seeps through the walls, and you can yeah. there is an atmosphere. There's definitely an atmosphere, and I don't know quite what, how you could ever define it, but uh, you sort of feel it in your soul. I think it's it's definitely there. Or you you know you go out into the French countryside or go to the trenches, you know, yeah. and you can't help but feel. <laughs> what's yeah. below your feet you know yeah oh definitely, uh, definitely. amazing well matthew it's been a, a delight uh, getting a chance to kind of tag team with barbara at the end here uh and congratulations on the publication of your book that's so, so exciting and um everybody here's the and by the way what a what a great cover design i know this isn't it it's amazing it's uh when i first saw it i thought oh they just They've got the book. That's it was only ever had one cover. They got it, got it in one, which is amazing. Well, and also uh, white swan, black swan <laughs> <laughs> on the back. It really innocent or guilty. Yeah. Whoever designed this did a really great job. Um, yeah. Did you have input into the cover design, or did you just? Well, it was actually stem. So it was a UK cover designer who sort of. Um, went rogue and just sort of had an idea of it and just did it without um, way before the deadline and just sort of presented it and it turns out very unusually almost every country all 30 countries around the world so loved it that they've uh, decided to use it so in each different country it's a different color dough so uh, at some point there's going to be a whole wall of eyes just with each O a different color so that's quite thrilling that's great oh wow now I, I gotta ask um, this this story you know begs to be adapted for either a I could see it in a like a, a short run series yeah limited series yeah limited yeah. limited series um have you sold the rights yet we are we were on the verge we were sort of uh we had the writer's strike so that was when we were just oh, yeah. about to, so uh but no we've got um uh, some extremely in, interesting directors and uh production companies who are so that that is that is happening as we speak Fantastic. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Matthew. Thank you so much. And um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, uh, hope to see you for book two. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been such a privilege to talk to you. All right. Cheers. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.